This episode was originally a live stream on YouTube. You could find out about all my content and how to follow and support me at erichunley.com. I hope to hear from you. And now, on with the show. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. All right, we are live, and today I have with me John Potash, and am I saying that correctly, Potash? That's fine, yeah. Perfect, and we're covering, well, the CIA, probably some FBI, continuing this track. Now, John wrote John likes long titles to his books. To Let me say <laughs> it is a, I, I don't, is it an SEO thing, but you have the FBI war on Tupac Shakur and black leaders, U.S. intelligence's murderous targeting of Tupac, MLK, Malcolm, Panthers, Hendrix, Marley, rappers, and linked ethnic leftists. That's one book. And then the uh, shorter title is Drugs as Weapons Against Us, the CIA's murderous targeting of SDS, Panthers, Hendrix, Lennon, Cobain, Tupac, and other activists. And that one you also turned into a documentary that you self-funded that is available yeah. on Amazon Prime right now, yeah. correct? I turned them both into documentaries, but the uh, the second documentary is much more widespread. It's, you know, as I say, it's available now in uh, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and places like that, besides just the U.S. Well, awesome. Now, there you cover so much stuff and i tangentially cover the cia as well i have a cia three-part series with um cia in film cia in the news and family of cia that i'm doing with mark robert and we started our first our three-parter on sirhan sirhan and i know you talked a little bit about that with bobby kennedy so this is going to be fun another guest i had on recently is um mike levine who's a dea agent yeah. that I believe is also in your movie. Yes, yeah. up here. So I don't know how far we're going to get. Okay. This goes all the way back to um, MK Ultra, mm -hmm. And I just, I'd love to start there because sure. I, I love going down this, this rabbit hole. So yeah, if we could start at the beginning with essentially, or uh, I guess the beginning of what I'm asking, but mm -hmm. MK Ultra and how you're tying it specifically to rock and then other forms of music later as they became popular. But it started with rock, correct? Yes. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, MK Ultra was about uh, basically, you know, controlling the masses through by getting them uh, the kind of information to make them think that they're acting in their own best interest, but they're really acting in the interest of, U.S. intelligence who are working for the oligarchs and uh, the oligarchs being the, you know, the kind of uh, the Rockefellers, Carnegie's, J.P. Morgan interests, et cetera, those Harrimans and all them. So, yeah, that's it. And so what I found was that music was the way to uh, reach people's hearts and minds the best. I mean, they took a lot of Nazis from Nazi Germany, Nazi scientists brought him into MK Ultra, and um, and then saved many more, you know, other Nazis for South America. But the ones in MK Ultra, you know, Goebbels had said it's not not about controlling people physically; it's about controlling their hearts and minds. And uh, and music, you know, they, it's arguably the best way to pe control people's hearts and minds. 
And um, so by manipulating the, these young musicians, they can uh, inadvertently get them to promote things that they don't even realize they're promoting. And then when they try to get, you know, get away from those things and change and to mature and evolve over the, over the years, they're done away with. And so that seemed to be the basic, basic pattern because MKUltra was about, you know, in the documents, in the MKUltra documents, it's about using drugs for unconventional warfare. And of course, mm-hmm. people think of that as warfare on foreign lands. But what I show the evidence of is that the main warfare was used when American dissidents, you know, as well as British, British dissidents um, and European dissidents. But, um, you know, I focus mostly on American and British dissidents. Um, and, you know, those people that were dissenting against, uh, you know, dissenting in protest for civil rights, those people that were dissenting against the war, protesting, you know, the wars, the perpetual war, which is, you know, a perpetual part of our, you know, our world in America. America has been in perpetual war, you know, since World War II, you could say, with the Korean War, the Vietnam War, low-level wars in Central America, you know, Afghanistan, um, Iraq, you know, drone bombing, et cetera, et cetera. You know, of course, Libya and Syria, et cetera. So, and, you know, and amongst those wars, it, you know, the reason that they coveted the drugs in, in many of those wars, Central America, they coveted the cocaine. In uh, the two longest wars in U.S. history, in Syria, I mean, sorry, in, in Vietnam and Afghanistan, they coveted the poppy fields to, to produce the opium and the heroin. And why? Because they knew that they could use those drugs to uh, sedate, divide, and oppress the masses. And I got this, that kind of last statement, I added the oppress, but um, Ramsey Clark, former U.S. Attorney General um, under Lyndon Johnson, um, talked to me at a, you know, in 1991 at a conference. And mm-hmm. I asked him, um, I was working as a drug counselor that, at that time in Baltimore City, and um, talked to him about the politics of drugs. And he said, well, I think drugs are used to sedate and control the masses. And I I'd asked him about that issue, and um, he said it outright. And I would just add oppress the masses because when certain psychedelics, I believe, kind of oppress our, certain parts of our minds to make us a bit more dysfunctional in the moment and maybe even a little bit longer term, uh, while, of course, the heroin and the cocaine, the addiction, you know, oppresses us in the sense of uh, it hurts our lives when we become addicted and it hurts the lives of, whole, of our families and our whole communities when someone becomes addicted. And so that's basically part of the way it works. Now, if you can, of course, manipulate these musicians who, who young people, who reach people, young people's hearts and minds so much, um, you can make them either consciously or subconsciously want to emulate these musicians we love and get them using these same drugs. I mean, there's nothing natural about taking a needle, filling it up with this, um, you know, heroin and injecting into your veins. It's the most unnatural thing you can possibly imagine. Who can imagine they would ever grow up to do that? But when you see these musicians you love doing that, you, you know, you can emulate them. And when I was counseling young people, including young musicians, they said they loved Kurt Cobain, for example. And and they always wanted to be like Kurt Cobain, and they actually ended up shooting up heroin like him because partly out of their love for him. And if you, you track what was happening in the 1990s, heroin uh, use went up 10% every year when uh, Nirvana first broke it big. 
Heroin kept rising in popularity, starting with Nirvana, but also with the whole grunge scene that Courtney Love helped cultivate in Seattle. And in, when I say helped cultivate, she she just was the probably one of the biggest purveyors of heroin to into the scene in terms of getting so many people uh, shooting up more than ever. I mean, of course, Kirk, she got Kurt Cobain using da- heroin daily for the first time in his life, by all accounts. And she just brought heroin to a bunch of people in that scene. And so that's, that's part of what, what it's all about. Okay. Now, um, it kind of changed up though, right? I mean, uh, if you go by like John Mark's book about, you know, finding Manchurian, which is yeah. a, a great source. If you want to look into MK ultra, he's yeah. the one who really broke it, um, mm-hmm. and fed the church commission. Mm-hmm. It started out with, um, with cannabis. Mm-hmm. And then went into LSD with a little MDMA. Right. Um, also thrown in there. I think there was a couple other ones I, I forgot. Yeah. But it was the precursor of MDMA at that time, MDA. But yeah, right. Yeah. It seemed like, okay, it started out with acid, but then they brought in, um, I guess, heroin, morphine, the opiates. And then that kind of went down a bit, you know, like post Vietnam. And they brought in, but then we started to look at cocaine becoming an issue, specifically base and crack. Mm-hmm. And it seems like as that died out, then that's when the heroin started to come back in in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And I just I'm finding this an interesting cyclical type of thing. Like it's not just a straight through all yeah. one thing all yeah, the time. Not that cyclical, Eric. Um, and I only know this because having started in the field in 1989 as a drug and alcohol counselor, um, I saw our statistics and I saw the statistics for Baltimore and Baltimore is probably just any city, any major city, USA mm-hmm. heroin was popular from the time I started in 1989, but I saw it back into the beginning of the 1980s, even the beginning of the 1980s, heroin was the most popular uh, drug in Baltimore. I mean, I mean for our clinic, but a lot of clinics, heroin was very popular. Okay. Mm-hmm. In the inner city in, in Baltimore city. Um, it got um, cocaine started to rise up. Baltimore's, I, I say Baltimore's like two or three years behind New York all the time for some reason. But so cocaine got really big in New York around 83, 84. It became really big in Baltimore about 85, 86. Um, and, but it never surpassed heroin. They were always, para, you know, at, at cocaine's peak, they were parallel. You know, they were about the same level of use. Um, and so what happened, there was just a brief dip. There was a brief dip in heroin. When we got out of Vietnam, we lost that supply. You know, America, American military lost that supply in Vietnam when when we lost Vietnam and, and, you know, got out of there. And, but by 1979, we found a new supply. Now, you know, in Vietnam, it was the golden, uh, triangle for heroin. That's what it's called. Those poppy fields, great, best poppy fields in the world, uh, for heroin, for, for, you know, opiate to produce opium and heroin. That's at one one end of the Himalayan mountains. At the other end of the Himalayan mountains, um, and along the Himalayan mountains, of course, is India, where there was tons of uh, heroin also produced. But basically, the two ends of the Himalayan mountains uh, were first, first Vietnam was under French control, but then, you know, of course, we fought for it and tried to win it over in the 60s and 70s and got out of there. And there was a dip there then in heroin. But in 1979, we cultivated our our connection there with um, a a leader of uh, the um, 
what was called then the Muslim Brotherhood. Okay. Um, I just forgot his name, but he's in my book and film. But this one guy was our central guy, but there was, you know, a group of people that were cultivating heroin starting in 1979 and cultivating anti-Soviet Union sentiment because a socialist uh, government had kind of um, won one election in Afghanistan. And uh, my understanding at that point, and we wanted to topple anyone that was not hyper-capitalist. I mean, that's what our oligarchs are all about. And so we got the we we got this band you know, of uh, heroin traffickers going around that region, Pakistan and, and Afghanistan. Pac- you know, this comes from some of the the top experts for PBS. They said they say this in my film. Um, and so you know they were they got bigger and bigger, and our opium supply got bigger and bigger from that area from 1979 onwards. And that's why in Baltimore, even as early as the ni- early 1980s. Heroin was big in Baltimore again uh, in the early 1980s, and um, so then it stayed big and it actually never dipped because that supply never ended until the year 2000, and that supply ended in the year 2000 uh, because the Taliban, for some reason, uh, agreed with uh, there was a kind of something put out there. I, I can't remember who it was by if it was by the United Nations or or what, but they said. You know, they they requested that all heroin production be stopped because of the the damage it's doing to the world. And Taliban's the only one that actually listened to that and actually put a ban on on heroin. They said, well, we're going to try, maybe we're going to try to look good or whatever. All of a sudden, they put a ban on heroin. And for a year, the heroin production dropped by about 95%. It was incredible. Um, I'm not even sure how they did it. But New York Times talked about it. The Washington Post talked about it. This was an open thing. And um, my film discusses why that couldn't be done, why the United States couldn't abide by that. Um, A woman named Catherine Austin Fitz was the Assistant Secretary of Housing under George Bush Sr. And she uh, became kind of a radical activist, actually, believe it or not, coming out of that job. And she was an insider in Wall Street. She uh, was in the top level of Wall Street, advising brilliant woman, advising you know billionaires on stock issues. And she ends up blowing the whistle on what was really going on. And she basically said that uh, cash, you know, street cash, tons of inflows of cash from from drug deals and and you know gun running and different other you know black ops, basically prop up Wall Street. But, you know, one of the biggest drugs is the heroin and the heroin dealing. And that that incredible amount of cash is laundered through um, American corporations in the stock market, through the banks and their stocks prop up, make give it, you know, and they've been caught. Some of the biggest banks in the world, like five biggest banks have been caught money laundering, you know, this cash. So when that cash stopped, when that when like that cash, it didn't completely stop. But when it was majorly decreased by this 95 percent ban on the largest supply of heroin in the world which is the golden crescent you know for heroin for opium poppy fields and opium and heroin it was uh dangerous for our stock market our stock market was gonna fall drastically and we had to go in you know american american military had to invade and um but you know that's that's part of why why we made it i mean of course you know we use the excuse of uh, looking for osama bin laden which is a joke you know, um, 
whether he was there or not there, whether he, you know, I don't think he was even involved in 911, but maybe he was, who, whatever, you know, I think 911 was an inside job. But nonetheless, um, we had to invade and we had to uh, get those, those uh, you know, that uh, heroin production back in place, get the poppy fields rolling again, get things, you know, going again. And we did, and we brought it up to a higher level than it's ever been. Um, while we were in Afghanistan, now now us pulling out, you know, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's it's a whole new world. Well, did the uh, pharmaceuticals help um, cover some of that gap too? Oh, sure, I'm sure they did. Yeah, I mean, well, the pharmaceuticals got you know cheap opium and for their painkillers, of course, and of course Johnson and Johnson was part of that. But um, you know, what's the biggest one? I forgot this Purdue. name. Purdue. Was, Purdue and OxyContin was number one. Johnson Johnson was involved. Um, but yeah, the pharmaceuticals, of course, you know, got cheaper opium for their pain pills that they got so many people addicted to that would then go to heroin after they couldn't get a quick enough high from the pain pills. Well, we're on the off the path here, but what about uh, fentanyl now, which is coming in and killing everybody? And yeah. the cartels are, are building it. And uh, talking to Mark Robert, because he actually ran a drug rehab himself and dr drew they're extremely yeah. concerned about fentanyl they're saying it's yeah. everywhere and yeah. everything yeah it's popping up in so many things i mean people are are actually smoking weed that ends up getting laced with fentanyl and i mean it's not common but it's but it's happening i'm hearing stories about it from my you know clients that a family member smoked weed that was laced with fentanyl and they end up foaming at the mouth and dying. It's, it's very scary. Yeah. It's popping up in so many different drugs. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's really worrisome. Yeah. But if heard, you yeah. gave a really good outline, Eric, I appreciate that outline of MK Ultra and the different drugs used from the beginning. And I think that's um, important because, you know, it gets me back right now to talking about, yeah, LSD acid was, was the the biggest focus of MK Ultra in the beginning, and frankly, the evidence that I show uh, suggests that they never really gave up on that. They, that they that's continued till today with the with the acid. Uh, and I say that because, well, um, first they used it. You know, one of the first like um, most well known uh, uses of it was against activist Paul Robeson Sr. Paul Robeson was an incredible uh, man. He was considered the best singer in the world. He was a, uh, a Columbia University trained lawyer. He was trained in Columbia University around the 1930s. He was uh, an all-American football player. He was just an incredible man. He could speak 20 languages. He was, was just a phenomenal person, one of the most amazing person I've ever read about. And to hear him speak at the HUAC, you know, anti, you know the McCarthy hearings, was wild I and mean, his, his his he was so brilliant um but so they used it on him in 19 uh it was 1961 they dosed his drink you know some some expat some like americans uh in russia you know soviet union at the time uh got a hotel room right next to to uh, paul robeson when he was visiting and singing there and they ended up inviting him to a party there and dosed his drink. And they did it to him. And then, you know, he called his family and said he thinks he's losing his mind because no one knew, really knew what acid was then, 1961. His adult son, Paul Robeson Jr., came over to see what was going on. And they dosed Paul Robeson Jr.'s drink. And Paul Robeson Jr. has talked about this and said that he was lucky. He just took a sip. He didn't really drink the whole thing and didn't get a full 
massive acid trip. He got what, you know, whatever is a lower level acid trip. Now, he said it could have also been a super psychedelic called BZ, but he's gone back and forth. He's not sure if it was acid or BZ. Nonetheless, it was a psychedelic, you know, that they ended up dosing him repeatedly. Paul Robinson Sr. Um, convinced his wife that he had to go into a mental hospital and then gave him, you know, overly high doses of ECT 50 plus times to ruin his mind. And uh, it's just, you know, what's that? That's electric shock treatment, uh, right? Sorry, right. Electric convulsive shock treatment. Yeah, for people that don't know. Um, and so, you know, it was horrible to lose such an incredible man to, you know, because he was an incredible civil rights uh, activist. He was actually three weeks away from, he was, he was supposed to meet with uh, Fidel Castro and Che Guevara to talk about, you know, international human rights issues and stuff. And so um, that was one of the, the uses of, of acid or psychedelics in general against you know, activists. Uh, but there was a number of, of situations. There was also the situation with um, the uh, whistleblower um, that they wrote, they made the film documentary Wormwood about. I don't know if you, uh, Eric, Ol you know, Olson, Frank Olson. Yeah, Frank Olson. He was a doctor working with them. And yeah, he, kind of, he, he right. was a CIA um, doctor, if I recall. And this kind of went off the reservation a little bit and suddenly, um, what, what shall we say he was defenestrated yeah that's okay. yeah he he was taken out you know i mean that's he was try he was so uh appalled by seeing what was going on in in germany you know the mk ultra documents where they were torture people to death in germany he said he was so appalled by that and some other experiments he came upon that this you know that he wasn't involved in that they were doing that he 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 was trying to get out trying to get out and they didn't let him out. He, he was too, you know, he knew too much. And so first they dosed him and tried to get, you know, out of him what, what he was going to, you know, could possibly, you know, blow the whistle on or it could, you know, what he was thinking about things. And he, he didn't give up what he wanted to do. And then they, you know, with all the best evidence is, is they threw him out a window in 10th floor of a New York hotel. You know, um, they had a CIA operative from France, actually a, a you know, assassin, and another guy just you know kill him and, and toss him out a window, and uh, pretend make it look like it was a suicide, and that you know that plays into the uh, suicide and Kurt Cobain business. But um, nonetheless, this is you know this is what they do. And so coming into the when the sixties started to progress, you had a group called the Human Ecology Fund, which was a front company. I mean you know like um, American uh, the the uh, basically a sociological uh, society, one of the top magazines for um, sociology just came out with the fact that um, the Human Ecology Fund was a front company for the CIMK Ultra project. And uh, what it did is it, you know, just to back up a little bit, uh, MK Ultra was an umbrella um operation it, it represented 149 sub projects okay right so it was like a lot going on project midnight climax is one of them yeah right uh and mk ultra itself fall under fell under partly um operation paperclip with the uh, nazi element yeah That's i mean i don't think it fell under paperclip but they definitely paperclip fed scientists into mk ultra you know either way you want to look at it pro which was kind of a partner program with chaos. So there was a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of operations. No doubt there was chaos. 
There was, uh, you know, uh, Mockingbird, uh, you know, which was was control of the press and and infiltration of the press. And but they really it was the ownership of the press that they had in their hands, according to, you know, uh, Watergate muckraker, you know, Carl Bernstein of Woodward and Bernstein fame. But nonetheless, um, so MKUltra and all these operations going on. And so one, uh, you know, with the Human Ecology Fund funding all these colleges uh, to experiment with acid, you know, first mushroom, psychedelic mushrooms, then acid on students, plus experimenting on prisoners and experimenting on people in hospitals all around the country. You had a mm-hmm. lot of, of uh, you know, tests on human subjects with acid. And um, and then, you know, so some of those some of those little, little you know, smaller projects on, on college campuses became bigger. Timothy Leary was the most famous one, probably the Harvard um, psychologist who was mm-hmm. testing on students. He he got his um, other you know other kind of teachers involved, other professors involved. They ended up working with um, a guy named uh, William Mellon Hitchcock and his sister Peggy Mellon Hitchcock. They were from the Mellon Hitchcock. You know the Mellons come from Mellon Bank. They own Golf Oil. The Hitchcocks were another incredibly wealthy family. They just, um, you know, they they came from. They were part of the oligarchy. I mean, Mellon's actually were also some of the highest up in U.S. intelligence in different parts of the world, and so um, you know they were running uh, a huge acid distribution operation. Uh, William Mellon Hitchcock started a group called the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, which was uh, for, for it immediately opened up offices in various parts of the country. Um, he ended up getting bigger in California, but it was, it was actually also had an office in Mexico, like virtually instantly. I mean, that's how, that's how huge it was. And so it was obviously connected to us intelligence. And so on the West coast, so, so, so they mainly centered in New York city, like just an hour North of New York city where Billy Mellon Hitchcock gave a mansion to Timothy Leary to hold constant parties and MK ultra scientists just hung out there and just experimented on anyone they could lure up to that mansion. They lured, you know, civil rights activists up there. They lured entertainers from New York city up there. They, they got, um, tons of people using acid and tried to hurt their minds. So they didn't do the best activism on the civil in the civil rights movement. I argue. And I just showed the evidence of that. And on the West coast, um, a different kind, but similar kind of operation was running through Ken Kesey. And I think Ken Kesey, he was a experiment. He was a, Experimental, experimental subject for MKUltra at um, Stanford University when he was in the grad writing program there. I don't believe wow. he actually knew what was going on. I believe he was manipulated to um, throw these parties where it was, you know, had constant acid at these parties. But then when he kind of could, didn't like the parties anymore, he tried to stop them, but they kept going despite his trying to stop them. And loads of I want to throw in a couple names that um, sure. occurred with Leary and the and the Boston crew, uh, Ted Kaczynski, yeah. Whitey Bulger, right? Whitey Bulger, right? With MK Ultra in the in the prison, um, Ted yeah. Kaczynski in uh, Harvard University, yeah. And and with Kaczynski, not only did they experiment with him with acid, but then they psychologically tortured him for several years, you know, uh, while experimenting with him with acid. So they created a monster in him, you know, no doubt. And um, yeah, and so then the West Coast, you had Ken Kesey with first his acid parties, then his acid tests, and then they became uh, the Trips Festival. And people, you know, the um, 
So the top psychologist of MKUltra, Todd Gittinger, said in a um, you know in court documents, he said in an affidavit um, that he was present at uh, at least several of the uh, acid tests on the West Coast with two other CIA scientists. And he was also at the TRIPS Festival with two other CIA scientists. So they're traveling all the way from Washington to, you know, the California area, the San Francisco area, to be at these, you know, supposedly underground, you know, acid parties. So these were obviously MKUltra events. And, and Grateful I, Dead was involved with that, correct? Grateful Dead was, was involved from the start. There's, you know, the name first was the Warlocks. They changed to the Grateful Dead. But, yes, they were involved from the start. And, um, yes, you know, I, I've talked to people who said, yeah, I got, I, I dealt acid and I got it directly from the top from the dead themselves. And so I, um, you know, this is part of how, what all happened. And it kept ballooning to bigger and bigger acid parties to you, you had the, uh, the beans, which were, they said there was about a hundred around the country where they would have tens of thousands of people and they were just distributing all different kinds of psychedelics experimenting on these people and um and then they became the huge music fest and of course i love music fest everyone loves music and music fest but it's sad that they took advantage of these music fests to distribute you know psychedelics like crazy now i'm curious okay because i, I always like you know it's like okay a lot of stuff's going on mm. i feel like there's got to be good motivation like one mm. they risk getting their own kids mixed up in this mess so one thing that I was, I'm wondering is if it was a generational gap issue and they were thinking, okay, rock and roll is music of the devil or damn close in their mind. Yeah, whatever. I'm just throwing that out there. And by targeting musicians, because you're, you mentioned uh, John Lennon, George Harrison, the Stones, are you in essence targeting a specific community who is listening to said music? Like these people have this particular mindset, we're going to target them, but our good, good kids, they're not listening to that music or they're going to be listening to something else. So they'll be safe. I, I'm just wondering if you've ever thought about this or. I can't, you know, it, I can't tell you how much they care about their own kids or not. I don't know. All I can say is the best evidence that I found. And I, you know, put it in my book with the over a thousand end notes documenting the sources and in my film with a lot of those sources, you know, saying these things in the film is the fact that it appears that they were uh, targeting civil rights activists and anti-war activists and trying to divert mm -hmm. the, um, the young, you know, the younger generation that what was the yuppie generation was the boomer generation, you know, very large generation of, of people uh, from mm -hmm. from stopping from their, you know, anti-war activism from stopping the uh, Vietnam War and from the civil rights activism that, that gained blacks, you know, and, and, you know, other people of color more civil rights. And so um, I showed the evidence of that. I mean, to the point of having undercover agents dose some of these top anti-war activist leaders and civil rights activist leaders. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go to John Lennon because, uh, you know, definitely want to get on the cover. Um, he's an important one. And I also wanted to know, because you mentioned specifically John Lennon, George Harrison um, and the stones, but you didn't talk about like the UFO club in England and London, the UFO. What's the UFO? The UFO Pink Floyd. Yeah. Pink Floyd came out of there. Um, okay. Sid Barrett, 
was known yeah. for losing his mind on acid. I, I'm yeah. wondering if there was involvement there because I mean that that was very deep in the, you know, that whole psychedelic movement was all about acid. Yeah, I did want to. I did want to put Sid Barrett in there, and I just, you know, I, I had to limit the the length of the book to make it readable. You know, there's only you go over 500 pages. Who's going to read that, really? I mean, you're, it's going to decrease the amount of readership, you know. But um, I didn't put Sid Barrett in there, though. I would like to. Um, yeah, I think yeah, Sid Barrett lost his mind on acid. But I'll just say that in 1965, um, Robert Lashbrook, the assistant director of MKUltra, um, according to M, you know, uh, a guy named you know A.M. Hotchner, he says that um, he, now he Hotchner was the editor for Ernest Hemingway. He's very well known, great you know editor and a great writer. He wrote a great oral history of the Rolling Stones called Blown Away. And Hotchner in that history of the Rolling Stones covers the era, and you know, and he says that Robert Lashbrook, you know, assistant director of MKUltra, came over to uh, London in 1965 with loads of LSD, loads of agents, and loads of money. And, and instructed the agents, and he, he you know interviewed some of the agents that said this, to get acid in as many musicians' hands as possible. Now, they pretended like they were just trying to do an experiment on acid and creativity. But what happens next, uh, within a number of months, all of a sudden, uh, John Lennon and George Harrison are having dinner over George Harrison's dentist's house with their partners, and the dentist doses their coffee with LSD. And George Harrison says, what's LSD? And, you know, after he drank it and he said, and John Lennon said, it's a drug. They, you know, they dosed us. This is terrible. And uh, they were really, you know, Lennon was really pissed off. Now, um, you know, so that's one issue that happened. Now, within a year, enough Americans convinced and other people and other agents, other, you know, people convinced John Lennon and George Harrison to try it again. But at that time, mm-hmm. you know, they couldn't believe it. Um, you know, how, why did this dentist do this? I mean, it's, it's a pretty incredible thing to do at a time when people even know, you know, this guy doesn't even know what acid is to do that to your patient. You're, you know, you're, he's, he was George Harrison's mm-hmm. dentist. Anyway, it should have been assault, really, you know, but anyway. Um, then two years later, so meanwhile, you know, uh, but two years later, Mick Jagger actually had been in a holdout according to Hotchner's book. Um, it's a, his name's A.E. Hotchner. I'm sorry. But Hotchner said that two years later, um, Jagger had been the only, the, the holdout in the Rolling Stones. He would not take acid, you know, he wouldn't trip. And, uh, finally a guy named, um, Schneiderman, uh, this guy named Schneiderman, according to the Daily Mail, which is one of the top two, you know, daily newspapers in London, Daily Mail said that Hotchner was actually working undercover for both the FBI and MI5, which is uh, British FBI, when he brought tons of drugs in a briefcase to a party of Keith Richards, where where Jagger was there. He convinced Jagger to trip to try acid for the first time, and within several hours, the police came in and arrested Richards and, and Jagger, but didn't arrest Schneiderman, of course. Who had a you know briefcase full of drugs on him, and um, and that popularized acid. So every time they do that, they you know they try to get these musicians you know using it to then popularize it, and uh, and that's the part of the way it works. And so John Lennon, people convinced him to do it again. Um, he thought he was losing his mind at one point, but um, you know um, Yoko convinced him he wasn't, and another guy that was around him tried to convince him he wasn't losing his mind. 
And but he was throwing up before concerts in 1971. He said he threw up for hours before performing because he was so anxious. And that's what acid does. It, it, it kind of uh, unnerves people. It makes them less um, emotionally in control and uh, causes major anxiety. I mean, I, I counseled people that would wake up and throw up in the morning. They were so anxious about just facing the day, believe it or not, um, from tripping so much. And so um, on that point, real quickly, because I saw this in the chat and I do want to bring it up because I think it's very important. Um, Chris Dreyer saying, I am still doing acid. What should I be worried about? So I, I do want to pause everything just to say, because That's this fine. is important. Yeah, no, thanks, Chris, for um, asking the question. Um, what I would do is I would just stop using it and, and just don't go back to it again. Look, I've tripped a half dozen times myself. I was duped and fooled into thinking like it was something positive. And uh, it took me a long time. I lost some abilities I never regained, to be honest. I had some like, memory abilities that um, really you know, made things easy for me in school. And things got a lot harder for a while. It took about a year to get some of my, you know, to get my abilities back, though I never got everything back. Um, you will get you know, abilities back in the, you know, slowly but surely, but it does take a little while. And I'm talking about, you know, maybe months or maybe a year or two or so, but, um, the further away you get from using acid, the better, the more control you'll get again and the better, you know, you'll, you're more competent you'll get again, but just get away from it. It's just, don't be duped by it. That's all. Okay. Yeah. No, sorry. Back to the story, but I was like, that was important now. Okay. Around the same time, didn't, um, Cass, was it Cass Elliott of the Mamas and Papas get wrapped up in that mix too? And yeah, yeah, the Manson family and all that. There's yeah. so many things. Yeah, there's so many stories. I mean, that, that, that book chaos is a really good book about the Manson family. Um, I don't know if you've heard about that. Yeah, book. I interviewed Tom. Yeah. Tom's great. I mean, he did a great job of revealing things uh, about the Manson family. Um, I alluded to, you know, the connections between Manson family and process church and the process churches in my book. I talk about process church has been you know, shown. The evidence shows that they're a U.S. intelligence front group. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, they so that's that's the way they that's another whole you know can of worms. But that's the way they basically can use this, uh, trauma to uh, create dissociative identity disorder in people and, um, you know, have them do their bidding and they that's what they did to the Manson family. But not but Cass Elliott um was uh was a victim, sadly enough. I mean she inadvertently did promote acid with uh the Mamas and the Papas. Uh but it, I think the um the founder of the Mamas and the Papas um I just skipped on his name all of a sudden. But one of the lead male singers was the guy who was uh whose family was military and military intelligence and I think he was an undercover agent that uh, promoted, like, had the, one of some of the biggest constant parties in the uh, Laurel Canyon scene, which Dave McGill had weird scenes inside the canyon. And so I talk about that in my book and film a good bit and have Dave, um, sadly, you know, rest in peace, Dave, um, in, his, in my film, you know, mentioning, you know, talking a little bit about that. But um, it's, uh, so, yeah, that was another, you know, hot spot in Los Angeles. You know, I talked about San Francisco, I talked about New York, but that was Los Angeles. That was a hot spot in Los Angeles for, for having constant parties, trying to constantly promote acid, heroin, cocaine to actors and musicians that would visit that area. And that's the, that's the, se- the second time that John Lennon tripped was just within, you know, maybe 10, 15 minutes of the Laurel Canyon area uh, when another 
serious promoter of those drugs, um, David Crosby, um, who was military. Uh, his full name is David Van Cortland Crosby. And uh, so the people who are from New York know Van Cortland Parkway. It's named after his family. There's a thousand acre park or something, the Van Cortland Park and all. He comes from, you know, a super wealthy family and his parents were in, in military. You know, I mean, some of his family were part of the military and he, you know, he was part of it all, sadly enough. But he Amazing. was more a knowing part of it, all, unlike John Lennon, who was duped and unknowing. And then when John Lennon tried to sober up and break out, he was killed. And that's the same thing that happened to Jimi Hendrix. He was duped and manipulated when he tried to break out and sober up and try to get more into activism. They were both killed. And um, same thing happened, of course, to Box Shakur and Kurt Cobain. How about Jim Morrison? Well, Jim Morrison was one. I had another one like Sid Barrett that I, I just wasn't sure if I should put him in or not. It's just, it just wasn't so crystal clear like when he broke out of uh, – his father was the commander of the ship that launched the Vietnam War. You know, he, His father was the commander of the ship that was involved in the Gulf of Tonkin incident where um they pretended like uh there was you know the gulf of Ta- the uh ship he was right. commanding was fired on when mm-hmm. it wasn't it was a you know i have a naval institute report on that in my film you know showed in my film and talked about in my book that it was a made-up reason to start the Viet- you know to get troops into vietnam and um so he- i have a picture of jim morrison with his dad on a boat you know it might, it might have been that boat actually but um, so this is where they got some of their their first people, you know, like going in there undercover and promoting these drugs and, and then becoming instant music stars, whether they had talent or not. Um, it's arguable that um, some of these musicians really didn't have much talent. It was the, this band, The Wrecking Crew, that, you know, were the really professional musicians that did really most of the music behind them. In LA, yeah. Yeah. yeah, in L.A. We're talking about the Royal Canyon music scene. Uh, some of them, of course, were, were could could play their music, and some couldn't. But nonetheless, and they uh, learned as they went too. So it, it was probably yeah, hard to play along. Yeah, right. They learned as they went along. They started out like instant music stars, despite not being really musicians. You know, or you're barely musicians. We'll say so. Morrison, you know, he had he was a bright guy who had talent uh, in some ways, but you know, uh, they of course propped him up and made him instant star. And uh, I are you know I. I argue now talking about it. I didn't, I just mentioned him in my book. I don't, you know, and mention my film. I don't really talk about it in depth because I just don't have the space, but I do think he probably broke away. He fit the pattern of breaking away and saying, I don't want to do this anymore. And started, you know, saying that the media is a, you know, is being manipulated to control us in one point. He said something about the media that was about the way, you know, uh, the wealthiest are controlling it. And so he was, he died at 27 years old like Janis Joplin, like Jimi Hendrix. Now, I don't talk about this in my book outright, but the 27 Club they talk about, um, yeah. it's under um, something I talk about later, which is the idea of an anniversary timing tactic or a threat timing tactic that appeared to be, um, I found that in the targeting of black leaders, uh, such as you know the cultural icon Tupac Shakur, um, Martha King, um, the head of the Congo, which is the area, the country of probably the, arguably the most resources in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, other, other black leaders, there was a threat timing tactic where on an anniversary they would commit an atrocity, you know, they would kill a leader or kill someone involved. And um, 
it could be said possibly that when they killed, you know, a number of these musicians turning activists at 27, Kurt Cobain was one of them, um, mm-hmm. because, you know, they were, it was a subconscious warning to others, other musicians. If you try to sober up and, and turn into activists, this is what's going to happen to you. Also lore. I mean, there is a lore with that. You yeah. know, it's like if everybody it's dies at 27, Brian Jones, right. the Rolling Stones, right. also seven club. And you were just talking about the Rolling Stones. Right. His was um i think they've determined definitely i think they've called it a murder now but you know his assailant has already passed away so I, I, if that was the case so i'm not you know trying yeah. to yeah yeah I, I, uh, I don't know how officially they've called it a murder they should have obviously i mean you know i have someone in my film oh actually i'm sorry it's just on the bonus tracks of my film um mm-hmm. It's uh, I, I wish I hadn't cut that out of the main part of the film, but it's on the bonus tracks you can get. Um, if you buy the physical DVD, you can see the bonus tracks of Brian Jones's death. I that was a really tough decision about whether to keep that in there or not. I wish I had actually, but it's in my book in depth, and then mm. the film it's in the bonus tracks, but um, bonus scenes. Um, but Brian Jones was him and Mick Jagger were the most activists of the Rolling Stones. You know, attending anti-war uh, rallies, and um, you know, and obviously, you know, arguably, Brian Jones was the most talented musician in the Rolling Stones. He founded the group. He was a great guitarist. He could play a bunch of different instruments. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, he was sobering up before his death, and uh, they said he drowned in his own swimming pool. And even Keith Richards, who isn't doesn't speak out much, said that it's ridiculous that Brian Jones drowned in his own swimming pool. I've seen him swimming in the ocean with breakers up to here. He said, he said it's just like the Kennedy thing. We can't get you know we try to look into it, we can't get to the bottom of it, and we're you know and uh, it's terrible. Um, And so you know, so partially responsible because he sent the guy whom they suspected to brian jones because he was pissed at jones at the time so there was like a conflict between them and the individual involved i don't know if that guy was connected or anything but keith richards actually is the one who sent him over there kind of like oh yeah well you know screw you. i never read that exact account but nonetheless yeah three guys i mean you know a guy from the the guinness beer family a guy named fitzgerald um was friends with brian jones and he went out. He went away from the house to get pick up a fr- another friend from uh, an area nearby. He was coming back to Brian Jones's house, and all of a sudden, there's a party at Brian Jones's house. Where he says that we, he wasn't going to have a party. He didn't plan to have a party. All of a sudden, there's a party there, and there's uh, cars blocking the driveway. So he walked or he parked somewhere else, walked all the way around the back, and sees three guys drowning someone in a pool in Brian Jones's pool, and he says what the hell is going on here? And all of a sudden someone jumps out, you know, pops out of the bushes and says, uh, you know, you better get out of here Fitzgerald or you'll be next. And so he was scared to death. Um, and, uh, what he ended up finding out and he said in his memoirs is the fact that they were killing, you know, Brian Jones. Um, and so I also have in my film though, that, uh, you know, in the bonus scenes that, um, this one of the tour managers for the Stones said that, the, one of the killers admitted on his deathbed to him said i i, I killed helped kill brian you know and so yeah it's terrible though and he was 27 he was sobering up and he was also uh talking about forming he'd already talked to john lennon and uh, Jimi hendrix about forming a super group in 1969 
uh, to be. So, yeah. Okay. So now moving forward, um, because we almost tangentially touched on it, um, talking about the uh, acid parties and the Grateful Dead, who was kind of the house band for that. Their uh, manager at the time, I believe, was a father to somebody who becomes very important later, um, shall we say, in the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. So so their first manager was Hank Harrison. And um, Hank, um, he's not seen as the most reliable witness, um, but um, I, I just double checked, you know, the most important facts from um a kind of pre-published manuscript he sent me by email you know electronic version of it and I interviewed him at length about all of the most important facts in that manuscript and uh tried to find backing for the ones i put in my i found backing for the ones i put in my book and film and what he says is that he basically um you know had this you know had this kind of fling with this woman who um Carol, um, they, they all change their names. It's really bizarre, but Linda Carroll, um, she's the daughter, the adopted daughter of the super wealthy couple who have stock in Bausch and Lomb, like major stock in Bausch and Lomb and uranium mines, etc. The father's an alcoholic. She says in her memoir that, that he sexually abused her. Um, so she has, you know, um, anyway, she has this fling with this, um, you know, Maybe they dated for a short period, but whatever, with uh, Hank Harrison. Hank Harrison said they had the baby, um, Courtney Love, and um, they were separated, though. And Courtney Love was would cry and scream every time she had to go back to her mother, Linda Carroll. And Linda, he described Linda Carroll's bizarre behaviors. But um, when um, Courtney Love was about four or five years old, though, um, Basically, they were fighting for custody, and the super rich uh, parents of Linda Carroll paid off uh, Hank Harrison's lawyer so that he couldn't see her at all for years. And um, he says he went into a deep depression from it. And meanwhile, uh, Courtney Love is going through a bizarre little childhood, going in and out of counseling from age ages change in different biographies. Two or four years old is when she started in different biographies and different memoirs. And... Um, she ends up, you know, he ends up hearing from her again when she's in a juvenile detention facility and when she's 13 years old and wrote him a letter saying, um, my counselors, you know, and psychiatrists were all having sex with me and giving me all kinds of drugs like two and all and second all. And these are MK ultra psychohypnotic drugs, okay, that they used, uh, along with trauma to cause dissociative disorder and dissociative identity disorder in victims. And they used, you know, of course, sexual trauma on those, you know, prime years, those uh, delicate years of three, between three and eight years old when your brain can split um, and cause dissociative disorder. And I get this more into this, more into this in my book, my film. I don't go into this kind of detail because it's just too much. But um, so anyway, so he gets her out of this facility when she's 13 years old and he finds he had, you know, he had taken in what's turned into his daughter turned into somewhat of a monster. She was a heroin addict. She was prostituting herself in her teen years by the age of about 14 or 15. Um, he says, and she said in a memoir actually that, um, she was already prostituting for the, uh, I mean, you know, she basically said in a, um, yeah, one of her memoirs, she said she, she prostituted herself for a boyfriend to get back to a boyfriend from Asia, from Taiwan 
In another uh, memoir, she said she was part of the white slave trade. And this is an, auth an authorized biography of her. She says she was part of the white slave trade for the Japanese mafia in Japan, you know. And so here is she's going through her teen years prostituting, you know, uh, by all accounts. And um, and then she uh, ends up at 17 years old. She just turned 17. She visits um, her, her father who had gone to Dublin uh, to do some research or, or Ireland, another part of Ireland, to do some research. Uh, he was a writer. He, he left the Grateful Dead managing after six months and then was writing. And um, and so she visits him there and she, he says that somebody befriended him there, a guy named Stephen O'Leary. And um, she introduced Stephen O'Leary to, to, her, to Courtney and she, Stephen O'Leary started having sex with Courtney, 17-year-old Courtney, and then took her to London. And um, I'm sorry, took her to England. I can't remember. I think it was if it was London or if it was uh, another major city there. I think it was a slightly smaller city, but it was a big music scene. It might have been Manchester. It was a big music scene where people like Adam and the Ant were, were launching and a lot of other big musicians were launching. The Pogues would play there. And she ends up bringing a thousand hits of acid, and which is parallel to, you know, what... Um, Lashbrook, what you know, MK Ultra assistant director Lashbrook did. He brought tons of acid over to, to England, and she passed around like candy. And she disrupt. She slept with tons of musicians. Uh, she almost broke up the Pogues, this Irish, you know, you know, punk band. And she then, so Stephen O'Leary is accompanying her and handling her. And and actually, Steve O'Leary, um, you know, Harrison said Steve O'Leary's brother was part was part of this at times. And his brother's uh, name is Kevin O'Leary. Yeah, I know. Um, and she's been seen in pictures with Kevin O'Leary in the last five, ten years. Still, I don't uh, know. If it's I don't same. know if it's the same Kevin O'Leary or not, to be honest. But it's awfully coincidental. And I did find an obituary that that confirmed what he said about Stephen O'Leary sending him a letter in two thousand five or six or so, uh, saying, "I'm, you know, I'm dying of cancer, but I just wanted to tell you that I was actually working for the CIA at that time." In, you know, um, in in Ireland when I was, you know, met your daughter, Courtney. And uh, so I found an obituary in Minnesota where, where Harrison said the, um, you know, the letter came, you know, where Stephen O'Leary was and was dying of cancer. And that Stephen O'Leary did have a brother named Kevin O'Leary, I found in the obituary. And so that's awfully coincidental, you know, uh, is all I can say. But here you got um, a guy admitting to working with the CIA you know, escorting uh, Courtney Love through the, the British music scene. Courtney Love ends up duplicating that same behaviors through a bunch of American music punk scenes. And um, in the 80s and 90s, um, marrying the top punk musician, uh, Roz Resbeck, maybe have been, I forgot his name, um, maybe a different guy in LA though, and uh, gets married to this guy. This guy thought he was marrying a punk feminist, he said, but it turns out he was, he was with a, you know, right wing Phyllis Diller, you know, he says, he says she would uh, bra brag about sleeping with generals in Alaska and they, they would tell her how good wars were for us. And uh, so she had an inside scoop on how wars are good for us. And um, so, and she would get um, like hitmen to like beat him up anytime he didn't do what she wanted him to do. And he finally got away from her. But uh, and then she ends up, of course, you know, coming to uh, Kurt Cobain getting him hooked on heroin, getting him using daily for the first time in his life, he had a, a massive stomach problem and was an easy target for that because the stomach did help his, I mean, the uh, heroin did help his, you know, ease his stomach pain. 
But um, he finally found a cure for his stomach pain a year before he died. And um, I have him saying this in an interview. And he also, uh, you know, when she, a, about a month or two before his death, it was actually a month before his death, he was in Rome doing a tour. And he just wanted to see his daughter, Frances Cobain, but they were divorcing. You know, Courtney and Kurt were divorcing. And uh, but she did want her to bring their daughter over there to see Francis. And uh, by all best evidence, she dosed his, you know, champion, his drink, some drink he was drinking and with uh, Rohypnol, which is her prescription at the time. It's, it's legal in England where she was, where she got it. And it's not legal here. It's roofies, you know, Rohypnol. And um, he went to a coma. And but the uh, hospital where he was in a coma said he had no illicit substances in his system, no heroin. Now you have a medical report somewhere. Yeah. Um, so this came out in uh, Wallace and Halpern's book where they, they talked to the doctor over there and um, they, and you know, found, found that out. Yeah. Um, people are pointing out in the chat and it's like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it's a slight sidetrack or not, but it did p- come up because I'm, you know, looking at the time, you know, where it's like check in, check in, check in, you figure that they're going to be involved. Um, Stuart Copeland of the police, his father was um, a definite agent, if I recall. Right. I don't know. Was there any kind of involvement you discovered? I don't want to go deep. I just was curious. Yeah, no, there is. Um, you know, I have that in one chapter of my book. I, it's too much. You know, it was too much. Mm. For the film. But um, yeah, Miles Copeland was a, they call a CIA founder and architect. Um, and best evidence is that his sons were just trying to uh, control of the industry. Um, one of the sons, I think Miles Copeland Jr. Maybe um, had a, a something called IRS booking. It's like really, you know, it's like almost obvious the way they do that. They sometimes make these names after government agencies. But IRS booking, where you basically manage tons touchstone. of what's that? Like Touchstone Pictures. That's interesting. I, what, what's Touchstone? What's that mean? I mean, uh, Touchstone was. Um... I forgot, but it's tied into the early CIA um, I didn't know that. organization. And then Disney, and then Touchstone Pictures came about. Interesting. And they, um, my uh, partner, uh, Mark Robert on a series, he wrote the movie, The Recruit. And mm-hmm. it turned out that it, it went to court. He, he has the cases and everything that it was written by the CIA. Oh, God. But he had to go through a battle. And when he was suing, it was like, well, why is this, you know, kind of out of work drunk writer involved all of a sudden? And then they found out that the notes were actually being straight out of Langley, the whole movie. And it was made by Touchstone. So, anyway, sorry to, you know, hijack. Uh, Yeah. So, this guy's running this IRS management group that's managing a bunch of what we consider all these independent bands. And I think a lot of these bands are independent, but they're manipulated and they're steered and they're, warned and they're you know god knows what else is done to you know control the industry store copeland's in police police get you know huge instantly and sting i think is talented uh but sting was in constant fights with store copeland um mm-hmm. and so um you know they end up breaking up the band sting broke up the band because store copeland wouldn't let sting write what he wanted to write and um but you know, so that's um, that is a good good point about that, and I do talk about that in my book. But again, in the film, it's too much. Okay, so that that kind of covers a little bit of the seventies to eighties bridge in right. between, because sure. in the nineties, picking back up. So Courtney Love winds up with Kurt Cobain, um, and yeah, you've got a, a ton on that. 
we have one more artist in there um that i wanted to talk about uh, sure. briefly i mean there's so much to talk about we can go on and on and on but uh uh tupac Shakur. yeah Shakur. so i wrote my first book and did my first film about tupac um he was a tangent from the original project and uh thing was i found so much evidence i uh, you know we basically just found i i was it's a, it's a long, long story but basically i cold called his lawyer his new york trial lawyer who, who and i said do you think they're targeting tupac like they targeted his black panther parents they said yes and no one's writing about it and i said well i wanted to write a freelance article for one of these mag, you know national activist magazines that we both knew he says yeah i read those magazines too sure i'll give you you know a lot of information and tupac's lawyer was a uh serious civil rights activist in the 60s and was uh a spokesman for the Mumia Bull, free Mumia Bull Jamal campaign, and also um, Tupac was an activist from birth. Um, his mother said, you know, mother was one time leader of the Harlem Black Panthers, and she, when she gave birth to Tupac, she said he's gonna be the Black Prince of the Revolution. And so he, um, he was already, you know, by the time he was 17 years old, he was elected, um, the youngest ever chairman of the New African Panthers which was a group active in eight to 10 cities trying to replicate the Black Panthers. And this was about 1989 or so, or 1988, I think, uh, when that happened. And uh, he only left that leadership thinking that, um, well, you know, he wanted to go into rap. And he thought he maybe he could get his message out better through rap. And he started touring with, um, you know, uh, Digital Underground, who were Grammy-nominated band out of the uh, Oakland area. And... Um, they were touring internationally and um, got big, you know, wrote a song with them. And then he, you know, I got this solo debut. And so he kept his activism up, but just behind the scenes. And people probably don't understand him as well as they should because of the fact that he made, had developed a plan with his uh, imprisoned activist stepfather, um, Atulu Shakur, saying um, that he was going to pretend to be um, this thug in order to appeal to gangs and politicize them, which was part of a Black Panther movement to um, get the Bloods and Crips to stop fighting each other and stop drug dealing and, you know, turn on to activism, you know, and fight racism and turn on to activism. And it became a very popular movement. It started in Los Angeles, it spread throughout California, then spread all the way to New York, you know, into the East Coast. And um, it you know, um, in New York alone, it got the Latin Kings to stop drug dealing. I mean, we're talking about the largest gang in New York at the time, several thousand strong at least. And, um, you know, professors wrote about this transformation in Latin Kings. Um, the Young Lords, the, uh, you know, kind of Puerto Rican Black Panthers started that with the Latin Kings, um, you know, the, the young uh, Latino gang. Um, and um, it was uh, an incredible transformation and it was scaring it, it hurt the pocketbooks of the cia drug traffickers and particularly hurt the pockets of the uh you know drug laundering banks like i said about the afghan war you know and the taliban doing you know uh stopping production of opium for that year it really um hurt the banks and their money laundering and the uh, stock market and all that and the way they they put cash through the stock market it um it's just it was a major issue and so tupac they tried to kill tupac i mean you can argue between say four and six times before they were successful u.s intelligence and i have all the evidence of police and you know 
first lower level police involvement and, you know, until getting all the way up to the FBI and possibly, of course, the CIA. But, um, but definitely, you know, I show all the connections in both my, show more connections in my drugs as well. I mean, in my FBI War on Tupac Shakur book, but, um, you know, a lot of connections in my drugs as weapons book too. And my um, FBI War on Tupac Shakur book has just come out in a new edition with a different publisher, Microcosm Publishing. And so you get the full picture in there and you get the uh, the attack on his family too, Fanny Shakur and Matula Shakur and, and all, the, all the way up to today. What's that? What about Sug Knight? Yeah, Suge um, yeah, Knight was like the uh, the guy in that Fred Hampton movie. If you saw that Fred Hampton movie, um, this is a low low. This is a criminal, you know, who um, he's charged with and increasingly violent crimes, and then all of a sudden he's in, increase increasing his amount of violent crimes, but he's not charged at all. And so what they did is they they had him turn into they said well we'll give you this deal and you do you play this part you'll get this you know you play this part and you won't we won't charge you with anything and you won't go to jail and um, so Suge Knight was given the position what's that so he's an informant like um like they suspect man yeah, informant provocateur yeah um, really it's uh, you know the informants you know it's a it's a name informant but it's really undercover agent um, but low level very low level obviously the, the Hampton guy was very low level um, Knight was a little higher level but still a low level low man on the totem pole his lawyer well, to, clarify that, it, to clarify that because I, I have Mike Levine he would run up a tree if he heard it. Um, there's a very distinct difference between a, an informant and an actual operative or agent because he was an undercover agent. So he, he gets really uh, tucked yeah, in. No, well, the DEA, the DEA is is generally more honest than the CIA and, and the other parts of U.S. intelligence. And Mike Levine was a great undercover agent, a hero, a whistleblower, and a real undercover agent. I mean, in the sense that he really did go out and you know, do incredible work all throughout the world, trying to bust these huge cartels, you know, drug trafficking cartels. But every time he got close to bringing a case to court, the CIA blocked him. And I'm sure he talked about that in his interview with you. Um, oh, yeah. I got him and my family just talking about some of this stuff. Mike Levine, he's 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 an incredible man. So yeah, I don't mean an undercover agent in that sense. I mean a CIA police intelligence um operative i'll say yeah operative in the sense that they're following instructions from someone higher up to sabotage uh certain things sabotage the gang peace truce movement that was turning on to activism sabotage and they were doing that at death row functions and to set up tupac shakur for murder by u.s intelligence um and that's what happened you know and and russell pool a high-level police detective um stumbled upon this and asked his superiors, what are all these, you know, what are these dozens and dozens of my fellow police officers doing in all levels of death row records? And they said, you can call them troubleshooters or, co or covert agents. Wow. Amazing. So, all right. Well, this has brought us, uh, I mean, a pretty big snapshot of everything. I think we've covered a lot in a, Did. a relatively short period. The cool thing is we barely scratched the surface. You've got a two-hour documentary. Everybody can watch right now on Amazon Prime if they you know, don't want to dig immediately in the book. Um, that is the same title as the um, 
Yeah. Book drugs as weapons against us. I'm not going any further. But yeah, drugs is international folks. Um, you can see it on Tubi. Uh, okay. On Tubi, it's on Amazon Prime. It's on um, what's that? Voodoo or whatever it is. It's on a bunch of platforms. But thanks, yeah, Amazon Prime is a good place to see it. Of course. Oh, for sure, for sure. And then, and then you can go from there. That that'll let your you know get you into it. And then you can read the whole book to get the details that he couldn't cover inside of the. Uh, movie itself yeah and thank you so much man i'm i'm enjoying this uh discovery and i, I there's this like crazy tapestry i was considering i i do a little bit of programming but i was like it'd be really interesting to put together a database and i've actually th thought about structuring the tables in my head because there's all these ties. Like I, I throw names in at there and then there's the film script and then there's this, there's Anderson Cooper. Um, you know, you have Sean Pan Hannity with his CIA pen. You have, I mean, there's so much, so much stuff that it is mind blowing. But then I also don't want to go too far down the tinfoil hat thing. So it's like verified, not verified. This is that anyway. Yeah. That's, would be, why, that's why I have to have the over thousand end notes to just show the sources for this stuff, you know? So people can make up their own minds about the you know validity of these sources, you know. Which yeah, I definitely, definitely appreciate. And thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure, Eric. And so if you you know, when my book uh, my book's actually out now, the FBI World mm. Spot Core is out with Microcosm Publishing. People can get from there. I think you can buy it directly from Amazon, even though it says it's coming out October twelfth. It's actually I think you can already buy it from them. But uh, it's coming out with lots of places and lots of stores starting October 12th. So um, if you want to talk more in depth about that, because that covers Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and others, uh, you know, sure. happy to talk with you again in the uh, later fall if you have any interest. Uh, how about audiobook? Please tell me that you're going to get these done as audio. That's I always wanted to, and I just haven't. So I thanks for saying that. I'll see if I can. I've got so many projects right now. That's hard, but hopefully, maybe you know, by November or something, I will get an audio book going for you. And one of those that, I mean, that helps because this to gets turned into a podcast. Guess what podcasts do? They listen to books. That's I don't have time to read it. That's I only have time to listen. I tell you, I tell you here, Eric. I'll try to see if I can do that sometime within the next few months. Okay. Just go to acx.com. There's narrators. You could probably work something out for fifty percent or whatever. You know, there's deals. You can pay them directly. Um, acx.com. So anyway, thanks. I, 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 uh, I don't even don't know about that. So thanks for telling me. Great. Good thing, All right. Good talking to you, Eric. All right. Good. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. And if you would like even more content and community, please consider joining my locals at unstructured.locals.com. And you can always find out more about me and my shows and everything I do at Eric Hunley. Dot com. See you next time.